Well, good morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Hans. It's great to see you all here. Uh, but how about we pray as we look at Romans 15. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us through it. And I pray that we will be changed as we encounter you in your word. Uh, Lord, please speak through me this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the author Michael Hardy is a researcher. He wrote a book called The 100, ranking a ranking of the most influential people in history. Uh, number one was Muhammad. Number two was Isaac Newton. Number three was Jesus. Number four, Buddha. Number five, Confucius. And number six, Paul of Tarsus, who wrote the book of Romans and wrote so much of the New Testament. Michael Hart was asked, why did you put Jesus number three and yet Muhammad, the great prophet of Islam, number one? And he said, it is because I see the influence of Muhammad far more in the lives of his followers than I do the influence of Jesus on his followers. That's kind of condemning and challenging, isn't it? And yet, when I was thinking about the Apostle Paul, here is a guy who has the influence of Jesus written all over his life. In fact, I think you could argue that the Apostle Paul probably should have been a rank or two up that list. He is one of the most influential people that, have, that has ever lived. He was radically influential for Jesus. He started churches that changed the world. He, is, uh, he wrote letters that have been used for 2,000 years. In fact, he's one of the most quoted people of all time. He converted people who became leaders and those leaders converted others. And from that, the, the Christianity took hold of the, the Roman world. He is one of the most influential people of all time. We live in a world of influences. But when I, when I look at the world and the influences that we have, they're quite pathetic. It is, it is, influences today is all about how many people can like me on social media or that kind of thing. And yet the influence will wane very, very quickly. And yet the influence of Paul hasn't waned. And when I think about influence and I think about our lives and us as a church... I wonder if you think about our church and you want it to be an influential church. If you want to be, if you want this church to be a church that influences people, not for us or not for me or the staff team, but for Jesus. I wonder if you want people to realize that there is a church called Marsfield Community Church and it is a church that bangs on and on and on about Jesus. Because in the end, that was what Paul was known for, banging on and on and on about Jesus. And no matter what happened, he kept doing it. I want this church to be influential for Jesus. I want you to be influential for Jesus in your workplace, in, in, in your social circles, in your family. And, but when I think about us as a church, I actually think there are three areas that this passage says that we need the gospel to really infect us so that we're influential. 
Here are those three areas, and this is the three points of the sermon. Those three areas are unity, motivation, and strategy. The gospel needs to infect us in three areas so that we're more united, we're motivated, and we're strategic. Let's have a look at at this passage, and let's have a look at point number one, what I've called gospel unity. Have a look at verse one. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. Last week we saw in Romans 14 that there was the weak and the strong. The weak people were not eating meat that was probably sacrificed to idols because they were concerned that that affects their relationship with Jesus. And the strong ones were people who went, well, I'm free to eat whatever I want in Jesus. And and here Paul is saying if you're strong, if if you have grasped your freedom in Jesus, what you're going to do is kind of withhold your freedoms for the good of others. You're meant to think of your neighbour more than yourself. And verses 1 and 2 is a sweeping statement. It's almost like every area of your life has to come under verses 1 and 2. That is, every area of your life, if you follow the Lord Jesus, is meant to be, you're meant to be thinking about how you can help others. So your time is not for you and you alone. If, if you follow the Lord Jesus, it's for him. And then how you help others. Your money is the same. Your gifts, every area of your life. But you're probably going, well, hands, that's very easy for Paul to say. But Paul didn't just speak a good game. He lived it. Since he was converted on the Damascus Road, He lived every moment of every day for the Lord Jesus and for others. That's what he did. And in fact, Jesus did that himself. Have a look at verse 3 with me. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Jesus didn't live when he was on this world for himself because if he did, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. No, but he lived for you on one level. Of course, he lived to glorify his Father, but he came to save you. On the cross, he was thinking of you and me as he died. He wasn't thinking about himself. And if we really grasp this thinking about other people before ourselves, we will be united. What is the one thing, as we're going to see later, I think, the one thing that actually uh, infects churches so that we're not united is thinking about ourselves. But Paul goes on to show that this unity is actually from God. Have a look at verse 5 with me. It says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Did you see who brings this unity? It is the God who gives endurance. So if we're united as a church, of course we've worked hard at it and that's an appropriate thing. But who is the one that has worked through our hard work? It is God. It is God who brings us together. And therefore, one of the things that we should do as a church is do what Jesus did. Jesus, the night before he was crucified in John's Gospel, we read that he he prayed that we would be one. And so as a church, we need to not only be working hard at unity, but praying to the God who unites us. 
Not only is our unity from God, it is actually expressed as we gather together. Have a look at verse 6 with me. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that we're just thinking the same things. It's not just that we've got the same theology in our head. It is with one voice we're speaking it out, right? And in the first century, when did this happen? When did this one voice happen? It, it was when they got together, when they gathered together. That's when with one voice they either would read passages from Scripture that they might have memorised or, or you know, spoken out loud or they sung or something like that. The New Testament says the unified church is the physically gathered church. The New Testament says the unified church is the physically gathered church. When we were meeting on Zoom, yes, we're all part of MCC, but we're not united. Because unity, theological and relational unity, is expressed in physical gathering. That's how the New Testament talks about it. And so that's why, that's why we are encouraging those of us um, who are staying at home at this time to really work hard at coming back. Now, I know that there are so many people here or, or who are watching online who have got very big concerns about their own health and safety. I get that. I, I, I totally understand that. But, one, but there's two things. The first is this. One, we have made every effort here so that you could gather with us and express our unity together. And so, and so we are sure that church is the safest place it can be. The second thing I would say is this. And this is, this is a bit... A bit pushy, I know this. I think, it, I think it's very interesting that some of us are fine with doing the avoid church. We'll, we'll go to a cafe or coffee or something like that with our friends, but we'll avoid church. So brothers and sisters, can I ask you, if that is you, can I ask you to rethink coming to church? Can I ask you to rethink about expressing your, our unity together physically, as the New Testament says? And can I ask you also if there are concerns, concerns with this gathering, come and speak to me or Tim or somebody here, because we want to express our unity, as the New Testament says by gathering together with one voice singing, with one voice praying to our God, with one voice coming together. So this gospel unity is expressed physically together, but the grounds of our gospel unity is our standing before God. Have a look at verse 7 with me. Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So, so he's saying, just as Jesus has accepted you, when Jesus died for you, he wiped away every barrier between you and him. 
But the gospel also says that it, when Jesus died for us, he, he destroyed every barrier between man and man, or man and woman, or, or it doesn't matter. And, and that's why Paul will go excuse me, in, in the next few verses to talk about how the Gentiles have been brought into the people of God. Because there was this huge thing in the first century, uh, a church between Jew and Gentile. There was this huge barrier that Jews wouldn't meet with Gentiles and that kind of thing. But the gospel is so powerful that it has destroyed the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile. And so, if God has done that in the gospel, why wouldn't you be united with a Gentile if you're a Jew? Or so on and so forth. Now, I dare say some of you guys are going, well, well that, that's not really relevant for us because I don't really care about what race a person is. It doesn't matter. But one of the things I think what Paul would say to us is, what areas of our church are we making kind of dividing lines? What things are we saying, oh, you're that, I'm this? Are there any areas in our church where we are doing that? See, Paul is saying that God has included the Gentiles, that they are right with God, so therefore Jewish people should welcome them in. And he's saying to us, the brother or sister sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, it doesn't matter. Jesus has died for them and welcomed them in, and so therefore you and I should welcome them in also. We should be united because God has made us a unity and therefore we should express that in every way. I think, as I said before, one of the things that, that happens in churches where there's major divisions and, and splits is that we've forgotten these principles. We've forgotten that gospel unity is something that comes from God. We, we have forgotten that, that because we're right with God, we're right with our fellow brother or sister in Christ, or we should be, and therefore we should work on it. What happens a lot of the time is that my wants and my needs get elevated above the gospel realities that we've been talking about. Uh, one of my one of my leadership heroes is a guy named Pat Riley. He was he was a coach uh, in the NBA. He's now a general manager. He was a coach with the LA Lakers and the Miami Heat, and they won both teams won championships under his coaching. He, he wrote a book on on uh, leadership and leading people and leading teams. And he said the biggest problem with teams the the, the biggest problem when you've got a team is what he calls the disease of me, where people are more concerned about what they want than the unity or the goals of the team. And he says that, that it shows itself in many different ways, but I'll give you three of them. For example, the disease of me happens when people are not given enough credit or what they feel is enough credit. Disease of me happens when people don't get what they want. They don't get enough playing time or money or exposure. The disease of me happens when people are frustrated with the team even though it's going well because they are so blinkered on what they want instead of how the team is going. 
I remember reading that for the first time years ago and, and I photocopied it and I, sent, I, I gave it to my pastor at the time and he read it and he goes, that's just like the church a lot of the time, unfortunately. And, and I was like, oh, what do you mean? I gave it to him because I thought it would be great for his staff team to read but he's like going, this happens in the church all the time. People do work and they don't get enough credit, which shows they're actually not doing it for the glory of God, they're doing it for the credit of, of, of other people. People get frustrated because they don't get what they want out of church. I think church should be exactly like this, and when it's not like this, for whatever reason, they get frustrated. Or people are frustrated, even though the church may be going well and helping a lot of people and seeing people come to know, Jesus, oh, well, what about me? It's the disease of me. How do you actually fight the disease of me in a church? Well, you have a look at verse 1. And we read, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written. What we're meant to do is have the mind of Christ. Remind ourselves that actually Christ didn't serve himself, but other people. And was joyous in doing so. And we should do the same thing. Just as Jesus sacrificed himself for you, We're meant to sacrifice our wants, our desires, our needs for everyone else here. And that means there'll be things that we don't want happen here, but it is the best thing for the church. Or we may not like things that happen here, but it's the best thing for the church. There are certain things that as a a pastor, I... I don't like here, but I know it's the best thing for the church. And so I'm going to put my wants and desires on hold for the best of the church. I'll give you an example. I am a massive, massive, massive extrovert. If I could have, here's my perfect job in pastoral ministry, would be to do no admin, come up with no strategy, write no sermons or any of that. I would love to spend 40 or 60 hours a week meeting with people one-to-one. That's all I would do. I would come home on cloud nine every day. I just love people, right? And yet, because I am the pastor of this church, I've got to figure out, actually, that's what I would like to do. But actually, what I've got to do is do a bunch of admin. I've got to actually spend the 12 to 15 hours on the sermon getting the sermon together. I've got to do all these things because actually that's the best thing for the church. And let me tell you, sometimes, like this week, it was very hard for me to do those things because I would rather hang out with people. And yet, my role means that for the best, uh, for the, the best thing for the church is for me to sit at a desk and work out this sermon. Sit uh, at a desk and and talk with the the LT on certain things that we've got to do. 
So for us as a church to actually work, we've got to go, what's the best thing for the church? That's how the gospel unity comes. We sacrifice ourselves for the betterment of the church. But there's also gospel motivation. Paul, in verses, uh, verses 14 and 15, he says he's writing to them boldly. In, in chapters 12 and 16, and probably the rest, of the rest of the book, he's writing to them boldly and he's correcting them probably. And here he's, he's talking about gospel motivation. And we see that in verse 16. Have a read of it with me that one of the big things in his gospel motivation is grace. Have a look at verse 16 with me. Actually, let's go from verse 15 to put it in context here. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God has given me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying God has given him grace and this grace, I think, is not only to know Jesus but also the grace of ministry. He's given him this free gift of being a minister to the Gentiles. And notice how in verse 16, it's very kind of um, temple language. It's a priestly service he's talking about. I think what he's trying to say is his evangelism is worship. He is worshipping God by telling everyone about Jesus. It's not just something he has to do. It's something he gets to do out of an overflow of love for Jesus. And what does he want, want to see? Have a look at verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. The ultimate thing is he wants people to go from rebelling against God to obeying God. And what does he talk about all the time? Verse 18. He talks on and on and on about Jesus. He talks on and on and on about Jesus. One of the things that I've been seeing a lot of Christians do more and more and more and pastors and churches is to talk about politics and all the other things that we could talk about. And yet Paul doesn't do that. Paul talks about Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. He bangs on about Jesus all the time. That's what our church should be on about all the time. And I wonder if you're known as a person who talks about Jesus. And yet, as we saw, that this is a, this is a matter of worship for, God, for, for Paul. It overflows from his life. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was my birthday, and so my family um, took me out um, to this place at Wentworth Point called Burger Point. And it has got my, my favourite burger in the whole wide world. It's called the Marvin Glaze. Let me describe this work of art to you. It, it's got uh, two patties on it, two big thick patties with a bunch of cheese. And the bun on it has got like a Krispy Kreme glaze to it. It's just, it's probably a heart attack in a burger, but it's the best thing. And you don't look... You don't look, uh, what, what would I say, you don't look healthy as you're eating. It's pretty gross to watch someone eat it, but it's amazing. 
When people say to me, hey, hands, what's your, tell me where I should eat. I go, man, you should go to Wentworth Point, to Burger Point, have a Marvin Glaze. I describe it. 99% of people are grossed out by it. But I just keep telling people because I have had such an experience with this burger that I want to tell everyone about it, right? There's a sense in which I become an evangelist then for the Marvin Glaze burger. I have experienced it so well. I love it so much that I want everyone to know. And what I think Paul would say is his life, in his life, he's become an evangelist for the Lord Jesus because, well, firstly, he's been given grace by by the Lord Jesus. And therefore, he sees his evangelism as worship. See, one of the things as, as, as Christians, we don't have to tell people about Jesus on one level. I mean, we could just stay here and we could disobey what God says. We could just, it doesn't matter. We're just this great fellowship. But if we've got that attitude, what it says is the gospel really hasn't impacted our hearts. That our hearts may, may be estranged from what God would have us be. Think about Jonah in the Old Testament. He was a guy who knew that God was gracious and forgiving. And yet, he didn't want the city of Nineveh to come to know Jesus. Has your heart been impacted by the gospel so much that it's not that you have to tell people about Jesus, but you get to tell? So wouldn't it be great if Christmas this year on the 11th, you know, on the 11th, we're inviting people around to our homes. Wouldn't it be great if you were able to invite a non-Christian family? Wouldn't it be great if this Christmas we got four services on? Wouldn't it be great if we all invited one person or even one family, that each of the four services were packed because we saw the great need to share that gospel. But more than that, we saw all that Jesus has done for us, and we want other people to know that. See, Paul is motivated by the gospel to actually share the gospel, but finally, he's got a a gospel strategy. Have a look at verse 18 with me. It says this, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading Gentiles to obey God by what I've said, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Do do you see what he said? From, From Jerusalem right around to Illyricum, right around the Baltic Sea, he has proclaimed the gospel. Now, does that mean he has gone to every little town to proclaim the gospel so that everyone's heard? No. If you read the book of Acts, what Paul does is he goes to the the most strategic cities in the area, the big cities, and he plants a church there. And when he does that, he, he moves on. He's very strategic. One of the things that I was thinking about our church is that is this. Over the last 20 years, 30, 40 years, there's been so many people or so many churches that have tried to partner with us in the gospel. Some, some churches actually, I've been told, have offered this church money to buy the land. Why? A lot of people would say, hey, it's actually because we've got a lot of land. We have. I actually don't think it's that. I think it is because God has put our church in an extremely strategic place. We are 10 minutes walk from Macquarie Uni. 
where tens of thousands every day young people come to have their mind shaped. We, we are in an area which, uh, you know, there's so many high-rises coming up and so many young families coming to this area. As I've been talking with a lot of people, people have been talking about there's going to be an explosion of people leaving Hong Kong in the next few years and so many of are going to come to this area. God has positioned us in an extremely strategic place. If Paul was coming around Australia, I think he would plant a church in Marsfield because it's so strategic. But what are the other parts of, of his gospel strategy? Well, yeah, we saw in verse 18, what does he do? He preaches. He preaches the gospel. He speaks with words. In, in verses 26 and 27, he's, give, he, he's, he's gathered up a bunch of money to give to uh, the Christians in Jerusalem, because they're poor, he's encouraging financial generosity. And in verses 30 to 32, he asks them to struggle in prayer for him. What does he do? Here's his gospel strategy. He plants a church in a really strategic place. Then he preaches the gospel. He gets people to be generous because of the gospel, and he prays. It's a very, very easy strategy, isn't it? Preach. Pray, give. Preach, pray, give. As a church, in the end, that's what we're trying to do. We want to preach the gospel so that all people will come to know him. We want to be so blown away by, by Jesus so that we would give financially. And we want to pray. We want to pray that God would do that. And can I just say, as a church... But can I just say how encouraged I am by you guys? It is a pleasure to be your pastor. Because I have just seen in my almost five years the way we've grown in these areas. I've heard more, more and more of you being willing to tell your friends about Jesus. I'm so encouraged by that. You know, th- when... Uh, uh, just these past few years, as we haven't been able to meet, so many of you have said, "Hands, I, I miss those prayer, those days of prayer, and we need to have them." You guys want to pray, and, and just think about financial generosity. What, what I saw at the start of the year, we had. I, uh, sorry, when I first got here, I think we had an operating budget of 110, and we weren't sure whether we were going to make that. We had about $16,000 in the bank at the first LT meeting I went to. Now we've got $160,000 in the bank and we may get uh, over $200,000 in Offertree this year. God has worked powerfully in your lives to make us a church that is more prayerful, more generous, more on fire for Jesus. And yet, can I ask you to pray so that we would be more like that? Because don't we want to see more people come to know Jesus? I rubbished the sound of music last week, and I know I was I offended a few people, Evelyn. I'm sorry for that. And let me tell you about, I'll rubbish another movie. It's the Titanic. 
Okay, you, uh, more people are cool with me rubbish in the Titanic. My dad, when he was a kid, really studied the Titanic. He wasn't like he, he used to read up on it. And my, when the, the movie The Titanic came to the cinemas in Moree, my mum thought he would like to go and see it. And uh, uh, my mum actually had to take him out of the movie halfway through because he was going, oh, it didn't happen like that. Oh, I can't believe it. He hated it. And in fact, his mates at work told him how the movie ended, you know, with Rose being on that door and Jack, you know, dying in front of him and Rose could have moved over, but she didn't. Anyway, forget it, right? It was very funny, even though I remember one of the last uh, trips I had with him, we were just going, going for a drive around Maury and... Um, and, you know, because of the cancer, he was on, he was on a lot of drugs. But, um, but I remember saying, oh, Dad, what do you want to do this afternoon? And, I, and uh, he said, oh, I don't know. I said, I thought we could rent out the time. He kept going on. And he said, do you know how that, that movie finishes? That movie finishes with the girl on this piece of wood and she doesn't get, she doesn't move over so the love of her life can get on and he dies of cold. How selfish is that? And he went on and on and on about it. And I was like, oh, I shouldn't have brought this up, right? But, but as a church, if we're not going to do the things that will bring gospel unity together, if we're not going to be the people who make the sacrifices that that we need to so that people will come to know Jesus. We're a bit like Rose on, uh, at, the, uh, you know, at the end of the Titanic. We're not making ourselves uncomfortable so that people can be saved. Imagine if you were one, in one of those life rafts at the end and you were kind of sprawled out and there's people screaming. And you go, ah, you know, I know they're going to die, but really I'm just comfortable here. If you're part of a church, you're not called to be comfortable you're called to be part of the mission of God. You're, you're called to be part of a movement that is united around the gospel. You're called to be part of a movement that is motivated by the gospel. You, you are part of a, a movement that employs a simple gospel strategy of preaching, praying and giving so that many people would be saved. Is that you? At the start of this sermon, I said we want to be an influential church. And we will be an influential church if we stick to the gospel unity, the gospel strategy and the gospel motivation. Wouldn't it be great if next year as a church we saw our numbers double because we saw so many people come to know Jesus here and that we became the kind of church that God wants us to be influential, not for ourselves, but for the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we want to be influential, not for ourselves, but for you. Just as Paul was influential for you, I pray that we would be influential for you, that we would be people who, uh, who are united in the gospel, that we will put our own wishes and desires to one side and be united in you, that we will be motivated by the gospel, the grace that, that has been shown to us, and that we will be people who give generously, who, who tell earnestly about your great love.
and who pray, asking you, the Lord of the harvest, to bring in many people to know and love and serve you. We pray that as we've had two years which, uh, where we feel like we haven't been able to do the ministry we want, that you would give us next year a year so that we can be influential for you again. That as we're gathering together, we will be able to show that unity. As we're bringing people in, we will be able to show the gospel and tell the gospel so that in the years to come, we can boast on what you have done in this church and in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.